Do you all remember your first or, I don't know, first, second, third encounters with Lacan? I guess I want to just talk a little bit before we get into the mirror stage, which is the essay we're going to read today. Well, read, discuss, etc. Um, Lacan is this sort of fearsome figure for so many people because his writing is so dense. And I wanted to just see if we can do a little, a little, um, hmm, almost reassurance here. As to the density? Um, just the sort of like, it's not you, it's Lacan. I mean, it probably helps to know that he didn't actually write any of this down, right? Isn't well, most that's of- not true of, of what we're reading today, but it's true of the seminars. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, for sure. And the for seminars sure. in particular, it's, it's not just that he didn't necessarily write them down. It's that the things that we have from the seminars were written down by multiple other people in the audience, many of whom heard diametrically opposite things and who have different recordings of what they heard that are controlled by different libraries and estates and factions in like Lacanian, in, in the Lacanian universe and the expanded Lacanian universe. It sounds to me like there's a, a material way in which the Lacan that we have and grapple with today is not actually Lacan, but like some kind of homogeny of his listeners. Something like that. Yeah. Well, he's. I think there's. He's. There are multiple Lacans, right? I think yeah. there. There. Everyone. People in the same room would hear different Lacans, and he would constantly reinvent himself, and he would blow up associations that he founded, right? And he would, even as he would kind of occupy this position of 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 the master of the subject, supposed to know, he would right. kind of just then frustrate that and uh, and play with it and sort of see how far people could go with like pretending that. He was very much about like cultivating projections and mm. deploying them in these ways, such that one thing I think that to, to turn that that negative into a positive, mm-hmm. I'd say is that even more so than like the way we've said you can get to have your own Freud, you really can get to have your own Lacan. Like anyone who tells you that they've understood everything in the Lacanian opus and that they put it together in a systematic way, I mean, they're lying to you or to themselves or both. Yeah. The systematicity in Lacan consists of a deliberately anti-systematic approach. Like he continually undoes certain things and build, like you can get the gestures and that's what we're going to go for. But like, mm-hmm. it's not a, much as the guy, the, the guy practiced what he preached or at least instantiated what he preached insofar as that his legacy as what Mikhail Borsh Jakobson has called the absolute master is impossible to master for anybody. And that's yeah. kind of the point. Um, not that people can't spend their entire lives, you know, either getting trapped in it or finding useful things in his work. But It's interesting because the three of us have talked a lot about the sort of, you know, to the extent that a podcast has a mission, this one involves a certain amount of like demystification um, of, of taking things that are, that are, that are often, you know, esoteric um, or gate kept. Is that a word? Gate kept? Yeah. Yeah, is that, yeah, the, is that so. the past tense of, uh, yeah. Okay. And saying like, no, 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 let's, let's, let's give, let's open up some access to these things without you having to spend all of your time doing it. Yeah. Um, and yet I would say that Lacan has been a significant influence for everybody in this room probably in that sort of both despite and because of the amount of mystification and frustration that is involved. And that's why I wanted to ask, like, what was your actual encounter? Because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you mine. Mm. Um, in college, I studied a lot of, I guess, what you might call French theory. And I had some very wise professors who were like, one in particular, who was like, we always give you the primary text. And in this case, it's just, it's just not worth it. Okay. Like if you go to grad school, like go ahead and study Lacan. But right now I just want you to get the key concepts. And they assigned us, you know, some, some really good commentaries. 
And so it wasn't really until I got to graduate school where I took a whole class on the con my first year and I was livid. I was so angry Um, because I'd spent all of this time reading two figures that I I went on to write a dissertation about, Lucy Gray and Julia Kraseva, both of whom are intimately involved with in in various complex ways that we're not going to go into right now with Lacanian psychoanalysis, both um, theoretically and institutionally. Mm. Um, And then I was suddenly reading the seminars and I was living in this literally 200 square foot studio apartment. And I remember having a copy of Ecrit for the first time and also a couple of copies of, of some of the seminars and throwing the books across the room. And it was that same year when I was rereading Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. And he has this line that I'm going to completely misquote, but it's something about how he spent all of this time reading Hegel. And he's come to realize that if he doesn't understand everything in Hegel, the fault lies not with him, but perhaps with Hegel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, it's not exactly, I found that enormously comforting. And it's not exactly the same dynamic that we're seeing here because as Patrick is, has pointed out already, I think Lacan knows what he is doing in terms of being frustrating. And there is something that is extraordinarily deliberate about the idea of frustrating your expectations, scrambling your attempts at intelligibility, right? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But I will say that it was for me only when I started reading Bruce Fink's work on Lacan in the clinic that I started to really be like, oh, I, I need to pay attention to this. And that was, that was the way that I, I kind of found my way back to reading some of these essays in a meaningful way. I don't, I never, I don't think I ever threw his books across the room. I use an e-reader and that would be very expensive. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I remember trying to read at the time I, I was pronouncing it a crits. <laughs> I remember trying to read it and uh, getting very frustrated and realizing that I need to learn how this guy speaks and being delighted to find, you can go on YouTube and find lectures of his um, oh, what, yeah. filmed by the French government broadcast on TV in like the what seventies or something yeah. like that. He had yeah. a TV show. Yeah. yeah. But, and to be able to sit and like, listen to him talk for one thing, he speaks in riddles. This man speaks yeah. in riddles mm-hmm. intentionally. Yeah. And that was when I kind of realized it's not about, I think I was used to consuming new ideas as like taking sips out of a cup of water or something like yeah. that. Very organized, very tidy. They start small, they build big. Lacan, you have to stick your head in the river and like <laughs> learn to breathe yeah. under there. And then maybe <laughs> you can start kind of getting at some of his stuff. Yeah. So Once I, you I, are become water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I dropped trying to read the primary stuff and yeah. I've just been, um, what's the one, uh, McDowell's? Malcolm Bowie's. Yeah, Malcolm Bowie's Introduction to Lacan yeah. was awesome. It's really that, good. It's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that is the single best one volume introduction to Lacan's thought uh, by, I think I think he may have been knighted ultimately or he had like an OBE or something, but this this venerable British scholar who was a Proust scholar and uh, I think they've done some Montaigne too, but he was at Oxford, brilliant, lovely guy and he has this book called Lacan. Yeah. Uh, and it's out of print, but you can find copies of it somewhere. And I, my fantasy is that we have enough people asking for it that they bring out a second edition because it really is a wonderful account of Lacan 
that, you know, it's geared towards people who have some awareness of psychoanalysis and some interest in this thing that we might call critical theory or philosophy. It's not necessarily very clinical. Think is probably more for the clinical stuff in some ways, but it is the Bowie incredibly lucid. It's really clear. It's funny. He's a wonderful British stylist and it's not funny in sort of like this, the way with Zizek can be funny with all these rapid references and maybe you don't get the joke, but you have to pretend you do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I really think the Bowie book is a great one and I want to recommend that to everybody. The answer for me is I got into Lacan pretty early, spent the the first, spent most of college reading all the Lacan I could get my hands on. You know, I read most of the seminars or whatever. And mm-hmm. and I I had gotten hooked on the idea of one, trying to understand everything Zizek was doing, being like, okay, so I have to memorize everything that's happening in Lacan. And I have to understand all the differences between like key phrases in Lacan. What is the real, the symbolic, and the imaginary? How does that relate to feminine jouissance? How does feminine jouissance relate to what, the fact that the woman doesn't exist and neither does the sexual relationship, et cetera? <laughs> and I really threw myself into it. Um, but, but two things sort of, well, three things kind of helped me get, okay. get out of that, all right? right? Let's hear it. One was the realization that I only had so much time, but also that I'd gotten hung up on the mistaken belief. And for this, I blame my Catholicism and a certain type of scholastic education that just because something was the most difficult of the possible things out there, that it had to thus be the most insightful, true, useful. Profound. Some old yeah. like Gnostic thinking. It's hidden wisdom, so it must be true. Yeah. Some, for yeah. some reason. Yeah. yeah. And, and I will say, if, if you want to go into Lacan like that, you can. Oh, like, yeah. There are like Easter eggs you can find throughout this text, right? Yeah. But, Which is why we did are doing Lacan after Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 Lacan definitely has his eras. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but I, I got really, really hardcore into it. And, you know, I wound up, uh, I actually got a grant to go to the Cause Freudian in Paris, which is one of the Lacan, one of the institutions that sort of proclaims his legacy, wound up reading one of the, one set of transcripts for one of the seminars that he gave that had yet to be translated and taking a stab at translating it myself. And, you know, I wound up teaching it and later on and all this, but like, it became clear to me that like, just because something was really, really difficult doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a there, there when you get there, or rather that maybe the more important thing, and this is the second of the three things, is the process of getting through this stuff is going to give you the stuff or the attitude that you need, the orientation or a certain set of tools, which will be different than being like, oh, here is the truth at the end of this sentence or here is like what unlocks it. Yeah, yeah. So that was related to sort of the second thing I realized, which was that a lot of the ways that I had encountered Lacan uh, and I think a lot of the ways other people encounter Lacan is through like Zizek talk or or you get little snippets of film theory where people are saying, well, of course the frame this and of course the castration that. And like, it, it became very clear that, well, two things, sort of sub point, two things of the second thing, <laughs> right? One, Your those brain. people didn't necessarily have the chops to do that. Like they hadn't actually necessarily read everything or they assumed that, they understood everything throughout the Lacanian corpus yeah, yeah, when yeah. in fact they kind of hadn't or in fact they were just reading one particular period. Right, right. And the second half of this second thing that sort of struck me is actually the realization, the mounting one, I don't think anyone will argue with this. It's that uh, a lot of the different terms, concepts, models of development, philosophical axioms, whatever you want to talk about, like whatever you want to call the things that Lacan produces over the years, they're actually not meant to cohere together into a clear no. system, 
right? In in some ways, it's a, it's much more about the movement between the things. Energistic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's fundamentally dialectical. Yeah. yeah. So it was this realization that they would be imposing a false holism on this text, mm. right, or on this corpus rather, in the name of like and, and giving it this one single name as a metonymy, namely that Lacan, right? But look, there are many Lacans. The third thing, and I think this is the, sort of the last thing, it's that I realized after. And this is just a test of, of time, right? After all these years memorizing all this theory, all these different interpretations of, of different variations in Lacanian texts, that a lot of that didn't stick with me. I wouldn't remember it. I couldn't remember. And, 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 and not to toot my own horn too much, right? But like a lot of the things that I think make Lacan hard for people, particularly reading them in English, right? Are a little bit easier in French because like all, they pivot on rhymes mm-hmm. and like, we'll talk Hunting about that. Yeah. 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 And like, so that stuff was accessible to me and it was also like, it was in there. It was in like my, my brain stew, whatever you want to call it. And still I was losing it. Mm-hmm. And I was realizing uh, that, that, but what I was retaining were like certain types of gestures, right? Certain types of orientations to problems, a certain sort of drama of what happens to the person in Lacan's theory of development or what happens to people in Lacanian psychotherapy. And as the the technical dimensions of it kind of faded away with time, what I found myself returning to was a certain set of core concepts and things and realizing that those things, once you, if you let yourself not be too intimidated by the text, or rather, if you let it, and I love the analogy you gave, Dan. The, the, Me too. If you let it kind of that. wash over you, like literally, if you read this, if you if you sit down to read this the way you would read a VCR manual yeah. or a an introductory a VCR manual, yeah, I don't know, like I, I, don't know, <laughs> I mean, Macon died in 1981, yeah, so he he would have had a yeah a, a Betamax manual. <laughs> Uh, like, look, the next kids, the next time you're installing one of your fancy zip drives, you're going to want to, uh, no, but, but like, if, if you want to, if you try to read it the way you might read, okay, like an Ikea diagram for yeah, something, yeah. right? Like, you know, there are no words in those, right? Well, they have, gra- they have graphemes, they have signifiers, right? There's that little guy and then there's a little, I can already tell this is going to be a two part episode. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> but like, called it, yeah, but, but that like, you could actually, if you let yourself just go through it, reading it the way you'd read poetry, right? Assuming you read poetry, you try to read poetry or the way you'd read like something a little more arty. You're not necessarily trying to be like, how does this line of the wasteland relate to this line of the wasteland? Or like E.E. Cummings, why is it so weird you spell this this way in one sentence and not enough in another, like in a different way than the other, right? And if you just let it wash over you, things emerge. It precisely, and then this is my way to tie a bow on it, the way in which his work is about creating a vibe or producing a feeling or producing a relationship towards your own desire to understand and what can be known, that very much produces these kind of uncanny things where you read some stuff, it doesn't make any sense, except one sentence hits you and you come back to it. Or you read it again and a different sentence hits you. So stuff like gets processed like precipitates by you. up is yeah. sort of I'm like reading your yeah. hand gestures it's the the image I'm getting kind of combining what you're doing with your hands and Dan's you know kind of upsetting but accurate drowning drowning <laughs> metaphor but somehow you're still alive in it you're just I, I feel like yeah you like you've you've just kind of like become with it is like yeah what precipitates out and it's like you know what comes up on the beach after you know it's been high tide and and then like the tide recedes and it's like these, you know, these sorts of like, I mean, I guess the word is rocks. I was going to be like granules or nodules. We're really leaning into the free association here. But 
what we're going to try to do as we make our way through a bunch of episodes about Lacan this year is, is, you know, offer some of those little, I have this image of like iron pyrite, you know, like really, Mm. really bright kind of thing, like washed up on a beach. Mm. Um, And just kind of like offer some of those. And it's not always going to be like, well, you can take this to the bank. Um, But hopefully there will be some, as Patrick likes to say, cash value. Just want, I wanted to call attention, Abby, because I think in, in a phrase that you used that really underscores your point, and it's a distinctively Lacanian phrase, is it's the idea of something precipitating. Yeah, yeah. Right? And this is going to give an example, too, of how Lacan is all about puns and language. And and whereas, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because he'll call for this return to Freud, as Abby will describe, but also he's going to be using his reference that he keeps returning to are very different from what Freud does, right? So where Freud will talk about, oh, I don't know, biology and nerves, the, the things that are at hand for, for, for Lacan will be like the surrealists, linguistics, uh, animal behavior, the beginnings of what, you know, what we call ethology, et cetera. But the point in all this is that it throws so much at you. It overwhelms you. And in fact, even there's this wonderful line from, from uh, Malcolm Bowie that sort of describes this. Please. Where Bowie writes, one of Lacan's recurrent purposes as a writer is to amplify theories to the point where they become deranged, to supercharge them with meaning in such a way that they no longer have uses or applications. It is as if he is prepared to ask the question, how useful is all this? Only when the theory in question has owned up to its madness. And I, I mean, later, I think we there is a lot of stuff that's useful in Lacan. And actually, I'll, I will say, you know, I think here the work of my friend uh, Kareem Malone, who's a psychologist who uses Lacan clinically, mm-hmm. like there's stuff in the Lacanian corpus that has tremendous uses clinically. It's Absolutely. just that he also has stuff that, and I think in a way that no other psychoanalyst since Freud has, is also useful for people who are interested in other disciplines, whether it be, you know, political science or film theory or, or you know, any numerous things. But the I think the idea here, though, that we're, we're, we want to thematize is that when you when you if you're going into this looking for something very specific, you're probably not going to get it. And if you're going into it assuming you know what you're going to get, you're going to get the opposite, or you're going to wind up getting very frustrated. Instead, you kind of have to go into it and see what falls out or shakes out. And mm-hmm. the the phrase that Lacan uses, the, it, bearing in mind this full of the punning, the references, etc., is this know. idea of precipitate. Right. And this is a word that in English and French has many of the same meanings. Right. But a precipitate can mean first, like I could precipitate your going to the store by stealing all the toilet paper. Could just mean I cause something. Mm-hmm. Right. You have none of this stuff. Now you have to go out and get it. Precipitation could also be rain. Right. Stuff that literally comes out of the sky. Precipitate can also mean in the chemical sense, right? In the specific discipline of chemistry, it's when you get a whole bunch of things and what do they call them? Like a colloidal suspension, right? A bunch of things are put together in a mixture. You shake it up and then some stuff falls out to the bottom. Yeah, that's that's, that's the image that I was yeah. trying to go for before. That's the precipitate, Yeah, right? And then the final sense of it is consists of like using the word as an adjective with precipitous haste, all right? Or, or the idea of speed, and sign of like a decisive movement that produces something yeah, uh, yeah. that may be disastrous, but in any event comes from the doing. And all these different senses, right? I think these ideas of uh, these very overdetermined uses of this word, but also this entire idea of like a deliverable that's going to come from something, but you don't know what it is. And you're going to be anxious about it. You're going to feel weird about it and see what trickles out. 
that's, I think, the way to approach Lacan. And what I think we want to do in, in some of these episodes is to give people there a chance to both approach Lacan in a way that's that's not uh, intimidating, to develop their own Lacan, and to see what comes, what precipitates out in ways that actually can be very clarifying and useful. Because it's precisely by, well, we might say estranging, or he might say alienating, which is a very uniquely Lacanian way for it. Doesn't talk about uh, things uh, as being alienating. But by alienating things that are given to us, stuff's going to shake out. Happiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Weinschild. I'm Danielle. And today we are doing our first of a to-be-determined but non-trivial number of episodes on podcast favorite French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. Specifically, we are doing today the first of what's going to be, as we've decided in the last 20 minutes and as predicted by Dan. A two-part episode. (laughs) (laughs) As predicted by Dan, the second he saw the outline, a two-part episode on a five-page essay, which is the mirror stage as formative of the I function as revealed in psychoanalytic experience, which is probably Lacan's most famous essay, I would say. Um, And it's, he delivered it in 1949 in Zurich at the 16th International Congress of Psychoanalysis. But because it is our first Lacan episode, while we're not going to give you like an entire episode's worth of biographical background, we do want to do some context and ground clearing. Um, We'll talk a little bit about his biography, but I also want us, you know, since we just did this whole sort of intro, which if you are already like a Lacanian or invested in the Lacanian project or one way or another, you may have been nodding your head and being like, yeah, sure. What precipitates out? But a lot of other people are like, wait, what? Why are we doing this? So why is this episode so wet? (laughs) (laughs) Why is it so moist in particular? Um, We want to talk a little bit about his significance. Um, Why are we spending so much time with this figure not only to look at some of the text and concepts that are most closely associated with him, that are his most important legacies, but to, yeah, to situate you, essentially. Before we even do the bio, I want to say one thing that I think if, you know, if gun to my head, someone's like, what's the most important thing about Lacan? Not a situation I expect to be in. Very strange hostage situation. Okay, yeah. look, I'm a, in the business of philosophy, we do unusual thought experiments all the time. And this thought experiment is gun to your head. What do you tell people about Jacques Lacan? I would say this. He is important for a whole host of reasons. But for me, at least, and for many of, I think you could really say his followers. I mean, I think that's really the right word. And, you know, we can on another episode talk about some of the kind of incredible 
sociological dimensions of the entire community that gathered around Lacan at, at what came to be the École Freudienne and his seminars. We're not going to do that right now. But it's something like Lacan is the single best and most influential reader of Freud that we have. You will often hear Lacan himself framing what he does as a return to Freud. And it's not just like Freud, like tout court. It's particularly the early Freud. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, even to the extent that this podcast is influenced by Lacan, you can see it in the ways that we keep coming back to texts like the studies on hysteria, um, the interpretation of dreams, the three essays. That's, that's, that's Lacan's focus as well. We're getting that from, from him. Um, but I really wanted to read you this sentence. And this is from, this is something that Lacan said in 1980. I'm taking it from Stuart Schneiderman, who is a Lacanian analyst turned life coach. Not really. Um, his book, Jacques Lacan, The Death of an Intellectual Hero, which is really great. Hmm. Throughout his life, even as there were Lacanians, Lacan was like, okay, well, that's not me. And he, so he says, C'est à vous d'être Lacanien, si vous voulez, moi, je suis Freudien. Okay, so like, you want to be Lacanians? Like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm a Freudian. Like, so he, you know, and he dies the year after that. That's 1980. He dies in September 1981. So to the end of his life, he understood himself not necessarily as elaborating a new psychoanalysis, but as doing what I would call, in some ways, a fundamentally conservative task, which is the return to the origins of the movement. Like that's something you actually will see in religious fundamentalist movements is like, we got to go back to the beginning. And that is, you know, even as Lacan has this reputation for being like radical and wacky and the short session and all, and you know, he's this sort of rebel who gets expelled from the international psychoanalytic. Um, You know, he's the sort of like cowboy of (laughs) psychoanalysis. That's all true. But there is also this thing that is, let's go back to the text and let's go back in particular to this early set of texts. Yeah, to, to underscore Abby's point, I think if you were to describe like Jacques Lacan's significance in like two or three sentences, you could say that he is the most, inf- arguably the most influential and controversial psychoanalytic thinker of the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, You could agreed. be a little cheeky and say he's the most influential successor to Freud, or (laughs) you could say. Uh, But there you immediately get into sort of the meat of what Abby was getting at here, which is namely, what's the character of this return? And I think the, the return to Freud, right? And clearly it's not the return to Freud in the way that, well, there's an old Borges story about a guy who sets out to rewrite the Quixote, but from scratch. And his whole idea is that he's, his name is Pierre Menard and he's going to rewrite uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote, uh, but he's going to do it without ha- without copying the book. He's just going to literally get himself into the headspace where he's going to write an identical volume to Don Quixote. And everyone will be like, wow, this is an amazing book by Pierre Menard. Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote. Uh, uh, of uh, Quixote. Cervantes' Quixote, yeah. yeah. Um, it's clearly not that, right? It, not least because Lacan is going to use, is going to center 
disciplines or objects or concepts that were not very close to Freud. Like, for example, he's going to talk a lot about language and linguistics. Mm -hmm. He's also very, not very interested in like the literal, say, biological dimensions of, of, of the human body in some ways, or at least as far as like literal organs are concerned. Um, so for example, when he talks about castration, he's going to be talking about it in a very different way than say, uh, Freud would be in the three essays on sexuality. A different register. A different register. That's one way of thinking it, yeah. It, but also, too, he's going to, in his return to Freud, he's going to try to get us to encounter or, or to perform something that I hope on the podcast we've been centering as a very basic Freudian sort of habit. Namely, here's something that's given. Let's really sit with it for a little and see what it means and how it comes about and how our desires like for it to be something affect the stories we tell about how it came to be, right? It's it's very much a work of estrangement, of rendering uncanny. And also, to use another sort of word that's not a Freudian word, but that is a very Lacanian word, he's a theorist of alienation. And in all these ways, then, he allows us to return to some of the things that, you know, were in Freud and that may have made Freud very controversial and such a, you know, a master of suspicion or a Copernican thinker, right, in a revolutionary sense in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. But he does it in a way that's a little more legible for people who are in what you might call a postmodern era, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so in those ways, like, the, it's a return with variation and it's a productive encounter. I think we could also say, too, that one thing that thinking about Lacan makes us do is is re-encounter the, the way in which Freud comes to stand in for knowledge that we don't like, right? Or the idea of knowledge that's distressing mm. and then these ethical, moral considerations of like, well, what's this guy's deal? What does he really believe? And how does what he believe relate to the, the moral valences of the discipline that he creates and the therapeutic practice he lives, leaves us and the theoretical edifice he articulates, et cetera? Lacan is kind of a notorious asshole. And we're not going to get into some of the stories about like Lacan's personal life or even some of the stories, you know, I, I later, maybe in a, a wild analysis, I can tell some of the stories about things he said to people I knew. Uh, but he was not a, a paragon of he wasn't virtue. A, he wasn't a nice man. He no. was not a nice guy. <laughs> no, uh, but in that way, again, it makes us think about like, what are our expectations of people who have knowledge, right? Are they, are they necessarily, in other words, it interjects us. In, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it sticks us back into the fact that knowledge is never just an abstract thing. It's embodied in people, but also it's a thing we project onto people. And sometimes the people who are giving it to us, that knowledge may not be fully self-present to them. And sometimes their brilliance consists in their saying things that give us ourselves back to us, even though they themselves may be full of shit and partially maybe a bit of a, um, you know, like a crook sometimes, or maybe they're inconsistent, but, but still through me, through this sort of deliberative process of things hitting the real or precipitating out meaning happens. I guess I want to, I mean, this isn't about him as a person exactly in so, except insofar as like he writes like a dick, right? He writes like an asshole. Like I'm all of these things are well, but like, I mean, full disclosure, I wouldn't do this anymore, but I did write a chapter of a dissertation that was entitled In Praise of Unintelligibility. <laughs> where I was really I was really into like yeah. books that deliberately frustrate you. And I was writing about uh Lucy Regret, um, who Lacan famously kind of screwed over professionally and also Lacan. Um, but like I like that kind of writing. I do. But there are ways that you can do it that bring people in, and then there are ways that you can do it that do not. Um and 
also some of Lacan's most famous clinical interventions, like the idea of the short session, which has, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting, right, in terms of like the idea that if you're in a 50-minute hour, not consciously, but you're probably going to save almost all of the best stuff for like the minutes 48, 49, yep. and 50. Yep. And so, you know, Lacan was attempting to intervene in that, or at least that's the that's the theory, by saying like, well, this could end at any time. It's, you know, it's, it, it's a direct, um, it's an attempt to sort of short circuit some of the defenses of the ego and to, to, to get at the unconscious in, in some more direct ways. But that's, I think it's helpful to contrast that to this sort of extreme focus on kindness and like holding and containing of someone like Winnicott, even somebody who is, you know, as we talked about in our conversation uh, a few weeks ago with Brian Go Smith, is a theorist of hate, yeah. but is nonetheless, even in his writing, you know, he's an analyst who is so kind. His concepts, you know, I, I don't know a single mother who has interacted with the idea of Winnicott's good enough mother who hasn't, you know, slept better some nights because of that. This is not the character of the kind of intervention that Lacanian ideas prompt. And so we're not doing like a particular ad hominem on Lacan as a person, although there are like, you know, again, tons and tons of stories about um, his, uh, I'll just say unkindness, but it's jarring and it's jarring on purpose. Yeah. The, the example of the short session is a perfect one, right? Just because, again, it's it, in the modern moment, we're like, wow, imagine if you pay for 50 minutes and you're talking 10 minutes in and your clinician is like, uh, I don't think you're going to produce any good material today. Or like, we're or, done now. We're done now. Or like basically, or just says, or we're I'm done, done now. with you. I'm or, done with you. <laughs> right. You, and you're like, God damn it. I want to talk about my abandonment issues some more. And like, no. And then C- they come end back it. tomorrow. Yeah. And, and like, you could be like, oh my God, this person is now going to double bill and see three people, you know, in the 50 minutes. You could be like, why the fuck would they do that? But once you don't feel, it puts you in a relationship of antagonism or what you might even call paranoia. Right, which is a nice thing. From unsurprisingly, Lacan theorizes is a theorist of knowledge as paranoia, but mm. also it kind of speaks to something. I'm not necessarily defending the short session. I know people who love it. I know people who hate it. I don't think it would be good for me. It is the um, thing that got him expelled from the international yeah. psychoanalytic. Yeah, it, it's 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 a deliberately prickish uh, kind of performance, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a deliberately. It's well. Here's what I'll say about it. More than anything else, it's a radical and strange thing to do. And he actually, he also- I mean, it's, it's genius, it's, yeah. right? And, and authorized too by this logic of the precipitate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the idea here is like, we are going to precip- we're going to, by making analysis instead of a tired, familiar 50-minute hour and introducing a kind of precipitate haste to it, it could end at any moment, mm-hmm. stuff shakes out, i.e. precipitates that sticks with you after the session, right? It actually shakes you up. You could see how, and you know, at, at, to us now, that's like, well, that goes against a more like caring type of containing therapy, right? Yeah. And it could even go against Winnicott and his era, right? And, you know, Winnicott, by the way, who cited Lacan, though his oh, vision, sure. yeah, his vision of the, of the mirror stage is quite different, as is, and this is another reason why I think we're going to be reading Lacan and why Lacan is relevant for us. Tons of people cite Lacan, like from, from Winnicott to Fanon, right? Yep. To, to, yep. to, uh, to Christave and Eric Ryan, all these other figures, right? But at the time Lacan was writing, his interventions were also very much about 
contending with and unseating what he saw as schools of thought and practices of therapy that had de-radicalized Freud, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and hence the need for the return exactly to and, the to the radicality. And so they of may Freud. so they may not have been, say, giving us like a the the repeated familiar you get so comfortable you no longer feel any stakes to it 50 minute hour with someone who basically says, and how do you feel? And like, I hope you have a good weekend, right? It's not the same thing for him then, but his targets, namely the Kleinians and ego psychologists, both of whom we'll talk about later in the context of his essay, he sees them as having produced practices and theories that are equally just formal, that are equally about vindicating a theory over and against certain other sort of like claims of, of illness, of suffering, of transformation, whatever, but the idea there is through things like through the short session or through things like making you talk about lack so much, he is going to return you to what he sees as being radical. The character of the return to Freud is simultaneously a polemical claim against contemporary visions of what therapy should be or could be or could only be. Mm-hmm. And it's also a attempt to return to what made the beginning enterprise of therapy with Freud so important to begin with. As, as somebody that's been reading around Lacan for the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm at the stage of, I'm beginning to understand the things that I don't understand. Like, mm-hmm. not not understand the things, but I, I kind of am able to see what I don't know in yeah. Lacan. So I'm really excited about the series. So mm-hmm. I'll, anybody out there that's listening that is a little lost right now, I'm right there with you. Um, so, so far we know Lacan kind of a prick. I, I wanted to see if I can encapsulate, Patrick, what you were getting at with mm. the vibes. It's less important what the dots are. It's more important how he draws the line to connect them. That's kind of what you were getting at there. Yeah, I I think that's, and I think that that's what you just said there very brilliantly might be another one sentence way to describe Lacan. In terms of like the oracular. In terms, well, yes, in terms of the oracular stuff, like he's got, basically he's going to make us, what he wants to do is he wants to make us feel about language yep. and about Lacan talking specifically, but about all, all speech that happens in therapy or the strange phrases that we hear as a child. He wants us to feel as weird about that as we do about a dream when we wake up about it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's that type of unsettling thing. But the other thing is, yes, there are certain key specific Lacanian concepts and terms, right? Today, we're going to do the mirror stage. Yeah. The other one's going to be the gaze, Today right? and in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, there are certain key concepts, but also... Lacan is very much a thinker of patterns and above all of structures. So one thing Lacan is going to do in a way that's a little bit different from Freud, though he's authorized by Freud to do it, is to talk about a lot of things in terms of relational dynamics or to use another word, dialectics, right? I.e. the father isn't just literally the guy who comes home from work. The father is a you know, who has to have a particular set of genitals and et cetera, right? Rather, the father is a position that mm-hmm. has a function in a family system. Right? Yeah. He's going to be move towards describing things in terms of functions, relationships, and structures, and learning to perceive those structures, those patterns, and those relationships is in some ways much more important than the fine distinctions of what is in each and every position in those structures and patterns. So even though I feel like 
this is like very us to be like, well, it's, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes into this episode. We're finally going to tell you a few biographical details of the person we have just been discussing. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it actually speaks to the fact that both you and I, Patrick, like dislike systematicity <laughs> in, in a certain way that we um, vibe with Lacan in, in different but not unrelated ways. But I'm going to suggest that against all inclination, we take our head out of the like Lacanian river <laughs> that, or I don't know, whatever body of water it was. Let's get some that, air that in Dan, us. Uh, yeah. We take a breath. We return to the air. And we say a few words about Lacan's biography and a little bit about his philosophical legacy. Yeah. So this is, again, this is going to take two minutes because we're going to do, I would like us to, to talk about Elizabeth Rudinesco's biography at some other point. Yeah. But again, this is just a teaser. Which is enormous. It, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, he's born to a, a Parisian family in 1901. They're fairly well-to-do. A kind of an interesting data point here is that his brother, uh, I believe his younger brother, goes on to become a monk. Yeah. And so there's this question, this relationship to Catholicism in the family that's kind of interesting. Uh, Lacan himself will continue, and this is probably part of the reason why, again, like calling back to why I was into him because he's very much like a hermeneutic kind of like get into these books and these weird bits of Latin and all these different things, right? Uh, but that like he does not, he's not a believing Catholic for sure. Uh, and actually, Abby, onto the point of like him being a huge prick, my single favorite line in Lacan, which I think should, maybe some people will laugh on this, and and maybe, but also you know, there's some element of like national you can humor. Never, you can never know what the you, other yeah, you is, never know how the other is going to respond. But Lacan's the type of guy who, at some point, will be. I forget which seminar it is, but then he mentions he's he's talking about Christian themes, whatever. But it's all kind of implicit. And then somebody's like, "Well, now I suppose we must finally turn to Jesus Christ, since he is, after all, a fairly significant figure." <laughs> The chutzpah of like, yeah, oh yeah, this Christ guy, right? It, it's kind of amazing. I mean, you're like attributing to Lacan messianic Christ-like delusions to himself at that point seems almost insufficient, yeah. right? Um, but so, yeah. Well, he's the second coming of Freud. Yeah, he's the second coming of Freud. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, he studies... What, what makes Lacan interesting, right? He 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 goes into medical school and studies. In his first uh, case, which we'll talk about some other time, uh, he actually doesn't have that many case histories that we have that much access to. But his early stuff is very much interested. His early thesis, etc. He's very interested in like family systems and the family complex, which is a lovely little essay. That's actually not very hard. I recommend to people. But also, he has his thesis is very much about it's, it's on psychosis and a criminally insane woman, right? And and without saying too much, we'll just say that he begins to structuralize paranoia. He starts thinking about paranoia, not just as a condition, even as he deals with it specifically, but also is very interested in ideas of like anxiety versus these the other, but this the idea of psychosis and its relationship to language becomes very important to him. Yeah. The only other really important things thing to know about Lacan, and I'm going to really do want to keep this short, is that he is in this, the first half of the, the 20th century, right? He's, gets his thesis, he does his thesis in 32. He's really jacked in with some very interesting uh, 
folks in the broader art world, right? Uh, in like the intellectual the surrealists, ferment. Surrealists, yeah. yeah. Like you can find, he would, you know, coffee with Salvador Dali. Hell, I think uh, actually during the war, I think he um, he treats Anton and, and Anton Artaud, hmm. uh, who he says is incurable. Maybe right. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, he, he gets, if you're into phenomenology, he does le- lectures with, with, with his fellow Binswanger. He goes to Zurich and meets Jung. He trains. Did with, he meet Jung? Yeah, he met Jung briefly. Oh, okay. uh, though he never met Freud, which is really, really interesting. In 1939, when Marie Bonaparte, the the uh, the princess and Freud's sort of like patron and patient, uh, finally helps Freud and his family leave Vienna, she throws a big party for him at uh, in Paris, and Lacan is invited but does not go. Right, so again, meet your heroes. Return to we yeah. must return to the master, but I myself will never meet him. I mean, wisdom, honestly. Yeah, don't meet your heroes. He uh, he has uh, he marries in thirty four and has three kids with a woman named Mary Louise Blondin. In, in that same year, he joins the uh, the French Psychoanalytic Association or the Association in Paris. Um, he's also kind of interestingly in circles, not just with like phenomenologists, like he attends lectures given by Merleau Ponty, but also with all these people that are associated with uh, what's sometimes called like well, they're kind of neo Hegelians. Well, he goes to Kojev's lectures. Yeah, he goes to Alexander right? Kojev's which is, lectures. Which yeah. is really important and which, you know, if, if there's like, if you want to pick like one event in that part in terms of like intellectual history for, you know, this sort of strand of thought, like going to Kojev's lectures on Hegel is one of them. And, you know, at some point we will talk about uh, the, the Hegelian dimensions of, of Lacan's thought. In one sentence, if we wanted to, to like describe what that sort of does for him, but also what Kojev sort of represents, it's that... The phases of Hegel's dialectic, his grand story of Geist progressing through different forms uh, across different historical eras, Kojev really amps up, one, the agonistic, competitive, aggressive dimensions of the dialectic, right? He's very sure. famous for his reading of the master-slave dynamics, his mutual interdependence, but also it's, it's, it's always sort of thanatotelic. It sort of tends towards death. We'll drop it in the show notes. It's still one of the single best commentaries on it, the phenomenology amazing. of spirit. It's amazing. So, so he hangs out with people like Andre Patron and Salvador Dali, and uh, he attends lectures with Kojev. He gets very much involved with um, with Bataille, George yeah. Bataille, mm-hmm. who's another major thinker, kind of close to my heart. Which we can't really talk about too much here, but he does ultimately have an affair with uh, Bataille's wife, Sylvie, uh, whom he Just marries. Honestly, like what really, a jerk. really uh, living dangerously when. When you consider Bataille's interest in human sacrifice, yeah, they were all yeah. Supposedly they all wanted to do a, everyone at the uh, the Ancephal group, which is what they called uh, the Ancephal group, the headless group. Uh, they wanted to do a human sacrifice, but the thing was that they everyone they wanted, wanted to be, be the, the sacrifice. Sa- yeah, everyone wanted. And no to be one sacrificed. wanted to be the yeah. <laughs> it's like you know they're doing weird sex sacrifice stuff. Well, um, they're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, Marie, I, I know yeah. we're in the the realm of of Lacan here, where everything is language, but you know, yeah. if no one actually got sacrificed, like that's. It is interesting how much better Lacan trucks with the art community and how Freud seemed to kind of avoid... Didn't he look down on a lot of the arts folks that yeah. were inspired by him? And Lacan went the complete other direction. Lacan, like, is, really Lacan's a very, Lacan is a Parisian. Yeah. Like, I, I, I encourage people to Google the photo of young Lacan smoking. Like He is a hot, louche guy who yeah. sits in the Café du Magot smoking cigarettes. Louche, anyway. Definitely. Uh, no, that, he, that picture is smoking. You think? He's an attractive guy. I think he was Lacan? an attractive guy when he was older. Have you seen yeah. him with him smoking? I feel like Shirtless. this is Travis Kelsey all over again. Lacan could go topless and look great. Did we not, did we not see the photos of him on that bench smoking? 
He looks wonderful. Maybe we'll add that to the show notes too. I mean, he's like a heroin chic young Stalin. <laughs> um, I'm just going to move right so on. Yes, he, he's much more tapped into the art world than, I mean, Freud in some ways famously middle brow taste in, yeah. in yep. you know, in uh, literature and culture. Yeah. Um, or like in contemporary literature anyway. And is hung up on, is very much interested in, and, you know, for is very much hung up on on science above all else, well, right? Well, plus he's bourgeois, yeah. you know, he's Victorian, he's bourgeois. We're talking about, you know, he's Vienna, Lacan is Paris. Like it's it's yeah. a whole, I realize I'm painting with a very broad brush, but. Uh, very different traditions. Very, yeah. very different traditions. So we're going to, we're going to stop there yeah. with the bio because we are going to talk more about the sort of group and movement that formed around yeah. Lacan. But right now, we're going to finally get into talking about this essay, The Mirror Stage. And it is really an early essay um, by Lacan. And it's him taking a step onto the international stage um, in terms of the international psychoanalytic community. So we're going to bracket for a moment um, the École Freudienne, um, and all of the sort of like later um, like apparatus of like Lacanianism and get into it. I want to say really quickly before we do that, uh, I want to call back to something that you said a little while ago, Patrick, that I think is really astute where you're, you're talking about, it's not quite that you're saying that Freud is literal and Lacan is metaphorical, right? That's not, that's not right. That's, that's reductive. But there is a way in, in which you can, read Lacan as taking so much of what Freud is thinking about in some very concrete terms um, and thinking about them in terms of structure and in terms of function. And I do think it's that kind of abstraction as a, as like, he's a man who thinks in terms of abstraction overall. I think it's not surprising that he has also been deeply influential in a number of strands of philosophy. I'm not particularly interested in gatekeeping the concept of like who counts as a philosopher, but I will say that when I was rereading Malcolm Bowie um, in preparation for today, you know, there there is this line where he says something to the effect of like, it's not surprising if you think that this this paper, the the mirror stage is kind of strange as like an, an as a, intervention into a psychoanalysis because it seems more like an intervention in like a conversation about like ontology or metaphysics. And I I think that most American listeners who have run into Lacan have probably done so via Zizek. I think, but there are lots of reasons why Zizek likes, why thinkers like Zizek like Lacan. And there's a lot of reasons uh, why thinkers in the humanities like Lacan, not least of which that, well, He's actually engaging with all sorts of different disciplines and things. He's talking about language. He's not, his tastes aren't those of, well, the rather middle-brow Freud, right? He'll, inter, he'll interface with texts that, you know, he'll, he has an entire seminar about James Joyce, right? Whereas Freud seems to have been unaware of the existence of Joyce or at least did not, like, I can't find very much on that, right? So that's all there, right? He's already in this humanity space that's accessible or at least has certain shared things with, with other thinkers. The other thing, though, about Lacan is, is that this is very different from Freud insofar as that as a genre, Lacan del- has papers, yes, but they're not like 
some of the papers we've already read in the standard edition, or even the letters we've read in the standard edition. They cross genres. They involve these strange, in, he almost starts as though he's, he'll use we, or he'll be talking about, he'll reference things that the audience doesn't necessarily, well, he'll presuppose an audience or he'll suggest an audience, which may not be the actual audience reading it. Sometimes they're like manifestos. Other times they're like meditations. And other times they seem like they're polemics. And other times they seem very clinical. But it's all these things sort of at once. And that is, I think, perfectly highlighted in the text that we have before us today. All right, you ready to get into it? It's Lacan time, baby. All right, we're going to do it. Let's do it. We could talk a lot about background for this paper specifically. Let's just say two things. One, the translation that we're using is the more recent translation. Yeah. That's by Bruce Fink. So if you've got the older one, um, it's Khan's translation. That will not be quite as helpful as this one if you want to follow along. Yeah, we're we're Bruce Fink fans on, on this show. Both, both of... Uh this translation and also of many of his books. Very, very helpful in getting to understand Lacan. Two, in terms of background for this paper, it's important to point out that this was given in basically two versions. Mm -hmm. One in 1936 uh, at the International Psychoanalytic Association Conference, I think in Marienbad. Yes, Uh, it was in Marienbad. And, you know, we, we can talk more about what was going on in the IPA and the reaction to it, but we're going to set that entirely aside till a future episode where we get more in depth into Lacan and psychoanalysis in France and the international psychoanalytics sort of history. Yeah. But suffice it to say that after the war uh, in 1949, he gives a revised version of this paper in Zurich at the 16th International Congress of Psychoanalysts. Which is what we are reading today. Yes. Uh, And where I'd like us to start actually is to do something that I think is a good exercise for any psychoanalytic paper, mm-hmm. uh, but look at the title of this specifically. Absolutely. What's the title in, in English? Uh, in English, it is The Mirror Stage as Formative of the Eye Function as Revealed in Psychoanalytic Experience. Do we kind of notice anything about this title right from the get-go? Does anything kind of leap out to us? It feels like mathy to me. For- formative function... Like every word stacking on top of every other, it feels intentional. And even I in the think is italicized. So yes. It looks like a variable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the thing that, that stands out here is just the concept of the I as a function um, built in, built into the title. So, so yeah, so this is already something to, to point to here, right? You know, if you look at like books of, of Freud's that are translated or articles of Freud's that are translated, oftentimes they have titles like The Ego and the Id, mm-hmm. Mourning and Melancholia. In other words, processes uh, or disorders and psychic agencies, like en- entities that are kind of, to use a fancy word, reified, which is to say thingified. They have a certain substantial character. Mm-hmm. Here, what Lacan is highlighting is a functional character, right? Which suggests one, this language of mathematics, and he definitely is going to play a lot with math, like sort of metaphors here, Mm -hmm. but it also suggests the way in which whatever this thing is that we call an I is not a given static entity, but is rather something that is dynamically produced and presumably has to be produced in an ongoing kind of way. Um, It's also key to point to the fact that that second half of the title, as revealed in psychoanalytic experience. Mm -hmm. Do we have any thoughts on this? 
are we do are we doing like a new criticism thing where I can only look at the title or can I relate it to the rest of the text or no? Uh, your call. You're you're do it running with the this title exercise. for first. Yeah, do it for the title first. Oh, okay. It sounds like it's going to be pretty clinical. That's yeah. what I would say, and maybe I'm a little bit cheating here because it's not especially clinical, is what I kind of want to point out. Um, but yeah, it seems like, and I'm especially thinking about. Um, a remark that Jonathan Lear makes about Freud in his really excellent intro to Freud, which is just called Freud, where he's making a case that you should really read the clinical material and you can kind of like <laughs> let the the later putting psychoanalysis on a couch stuff, you know, go. We obviously don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, it's not the position of this podcast, but there is this line from Jonathan Lear where he's like, Freud was listening to people in pain and psychoanalysis emerged from that. And that's actually true when you read uh, the Freudian corpus. And I think the thing that's interesting here is it seems like we are going to get into something that is about Lacan's clinical experience. And spoiler, it is not. Yeah, we're only going to get a couple allusions to it in this paper. And I think this is also helpful for us to to engage a moment in a, in a callback to like, remember, we, we sort of divided like psychoanalytic thought more broadly and sort of Freud's writings in terms of genre as kind of encompassing or spanning like what we call three baskets, right? The baskets of the clinical stuff, namely what happens in therapy? How do you do therapy? What's like this case study? What's good technique? Then there's what we've called metapsychological, which is like, well, what are these psychic agencies? Do we want to think about them as an ego, superego, id? Do we want to talk about them as functions or structures, whatever? Essentially, it's working from the clinical data yeah. to arrive at models of mind and, of course, going back and forth between those. Yes. And then the third one is sort of like the applied psychoanalysis bucket. And that allows us to draw in either to use psychoanalytic concepts to talk about uh, literary texts or history in a sort of one-to-one way or to kind of use them as analogies or metaphors or in any event to to tie together these complicated ways in which psychoanalysis is like a universal science of the radically particular singular individual, right? Yep. It's paradoxical, sure. but that's what's going on here. Now, Lacan in this title, as it's presented, at least in English, mm-hmm. seems to be suggesting one, we're going to talk about this thing called the I as a function, as having a formative, that is creative, or at least a shape-influencing role, and as being revealed in what he describes as a psychoanalytic experience. This latter two, those latter two words, right, it's not in clinical sessions, right, right. or in our experience as clinical psychoanalysts. It's instead the psychoanalytic experience. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, no, I, I, I'm just, I'm just nodding yeah enthusiastically at you because I think there is there's a sort of expansion of what that category even means that's at work here. Yeah, and he seems to be, in some ways, it's one aspect of it, and it's worth saying here for those of you who are interested in such things that Lacan has a lot of quote-unquote phenomenological aspects, right? And yes. phenomenology is a, broadly speaking, if we want to name it in this terms, that are, that are most relevant here, it's a school of thought associated with 20th century uh, French and largely Austrian, German writers, uh, philosophers who are talking about the ways in which things appear. It's an attempt to... to Husserl, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty. Yeah, exactly. It's a way to basically you bracket questions about what is or isn't existence, 
right? You bracket ontology. We're not going to talk about like essences or Plato's chairs, right? We're going to do what, what Husserl calls a bracketing exercise. And instead, we're going to develop a very exquisite vocabulary for describing how things come to us in perception and try and find some vocabulary for describing the operations of perceptions across persons. Yes, right? that's what I was going to say, yeah. but not in a sort of just purely idiosyncratic way in, in, in search of like universal structures. Exactly. Which is like, I don't know that we, re- I feel like the entire episode has been like, we're going to talk about this, but not yet. We're doing this whole like <laughs> revealing, yeah. concealing sort of thing. But there is this, this part of that where, something we might talk about at some point is the scholarly discussion, which you listener may find fascinating or incredibly boring. That's up to you about whether or not Lacan is a structuralist or a post-structuralist. Um, but the ways in which there is this, the sort of, um, interest in, in universal features of human consciousness, I think would argue towards the, the structuralist argument. And, and we should say, too, that the, that the notion of doing phenomenological thinking, namely kind of like looking at things at really intensely bringing to bear experience and trying to pare away unnecessary aspects or like distracting aspects, right? As like a, not just like a meditative exercise, but like a meditative philosophical exercise is a venerable one. Oh, yeah. I mean, Husserl's, one of his most important books is called The Cartesian Meditations. Exactly. Right? And some of us may remember if you've read Descartes, the scene where Descartes gets a, a ball of wax from a candle. And he's like, how does this feel? How does this melt? How do I know what this is? Right. And then he starts asking questions like, how do I know when the candle just becomes, when does the candle stop being a candle? When it just become a, yeah. like a puddle of sticky stuff, right? It's phenomenology. It's an orientation towards perception. My and students thinking. get really irritated. Yeah. They hate that shit. <laughs> um, throw the book across the room. An emerging theme today. Yeah. Like you with Lacan. But, ne- but in <laughs> yeah. any event, right. This idea of the psychoanalytic experience here is not necessarily the clinical experience. It's about like a psychoanalytic orientation to thinking about experience. And the people that he positions as an audience are people who are psychoanalysts, but who are not just thinking about clinical things or even metapsychological things, but are also sort of thinking in this certain philosophical term that might be a little alien to Freud. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, I mean, you look, you might think that we're making too much of this seemingly simple term psychoanalytic experience, and maybe we are. That's possible. I'll entertain it. Um, this essay, as we will talk about at some length, and as is already evident in the title that Patrick is like very deliberately having us slow down with, it's about subject formation. Yes. Um, so if you want to think about one way to understand the sort of like Resituating of what is proper to this idea of psychoanalytic experience, you might think that for Lacan, we are in the realm of psychoanalysis whenever we are talking about this, the formation of the self. Um, and that is, in so many ways, what this essay is about. It is about the formation of the self. It is about the formation of the self as always already other to itself even at the moment when it perceives itself to be whole. And, and we should say here too, note that these, this way of thinking is different from the Freudian one. We've already used this Deeply. term subject, right? And subject can mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Now what's at stake here is much more difficult because one, he's talking about like the subject, yes, as like the subject of experience, but also the subject as in like 
the person as a arena of speculation or a participant in psychoanalytic therapy, but also the subject is like, it's the subject of language, yes, the subject yes. of a social order or an ideological order, which is later where people will go with this. But the idea here ultimately is how the subject isn't given. The subject is made functionally. Right. So the second thing I kind of want to say here too, and this is a nice, this is warranted vis-a-vis the title, as you'll see in a second, but also is a very helpful way for us to think about reading Lacan specifically, but also any psychoanalyst in terms of their communications to the public or to uh, their colleagues, you know, in, in addresses and papers and case conferences, whatever, which is that is to ask the question, how does this constitute an audience, right? It's audience. How does it, who is it addressed to? Who is, who is it speaking from? I, it's not just a paper by Lacan. Lacan is going to put himself as representing something and he's going to put his audience as representing something. More specifically, remember, there was an audience in 1939 at this paper, uh, or in 1936, and now in 1949, it's a different audience. Yep. But also there's this broader audience or this collectivity of the people who are interested in experience or the people who are experiencing psychoanalysis who want to think in these terms. And at that point, we should look at the title in its original French, because I think that also kind of points to something. So the title is Le Stade du Miroir comme formateur de la fonction du jeu, tel qu'elle nous est révélée dans l'expérience psychanalytique. Oh, it's beautiful, for one. Why, thank you. Well, it's just because it's French. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, Abby, does anything catch you interested in, in that title? I mean, again, this is, you don't need to know Lacan to read French, or rather, you don't. <laughs> You don't need to know French to read Lacan, but I will say that for those of you who But it are, doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. And also because a lot of what goes on in Lacan, he's so interested in language and fronts the question of language, punning and um, the the multiple senses of words is very much part of what's going on. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah. in, in French, uh, pun is, is jeu de mots, yeah. um, like literally like play on words. And uh, yeah, so again, not trying to be gatekeepy yeah. at all with with respect to it but it's more that so many of the the things that Patrick was talking about as like precipitating out do so out of um specific puns often that are homophones in, in French so we're going to bring those up when when that is the case I think part of what's deliberately at play what Lacan is doing mm-hmm. is this idea that stuff is overdetermined there are too many meanings yeah well I mean and I think that's what I would want to say is the way that I hear what you're doing here is in some ways, like we're overcorrecting yes. for the difficulty of Lacan. And that that's a deliberate choice. But I think the the point, if I'm hearing you correctly, that you're making, Patrick, is that that can be generative in a certain way, especially in a tradition that values wordplay and free association. Um, and that understand some of those things as fundamentally idiosyncratic. I also wanted to say, I actually did have to make my own translation of this essay when I was in graduate school, um, which was much, much worse than Bruce Fink's. Much, much worse. But I found it, um, and and I will say this as somebody, like my French is fine. Patrick's French is much better than mine. But I, I did for, for several semesters this like philosophical text in translation workshop, um, which was probably the best thing that I did in graduate school. And, you know, one, one time we had to translate, and I'm bringing this up not because like my 
you know, pathetic history of translating is especially interesting, but because two of these things we're going to talk about the second that we get into paragraph one of this essay, um, where Lacan is going to set up what he's doing in opposition to Descartes is I had to spend a whole semester translating Descartes um, discourse on the method. Um, and then I, at some point I translated this essay and I learned that Descartes French was much like kind of messier than I expected mm. from, huh. from the English translation. I mean, not, I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, but you expect it to be sort of like more declarative, like more like Hemingway than right. it actually is. Um, and then reading and translating this, I remember feeling like, Oh, some of this is actually much clearer. Yeah. And again, not because I have such beautiful French. I truly do not. Um, but simply because there are, some phrases that, you know, that, like there's a part where he talks about the, the corps morcelé, like the, the, um, the kind of body in pieces, the fragmented body. And, you know, in some ways it's a lot easier to think about that. That's pretty concrete yeah. as opposed to just like this sort of abstract idea of fragmentation. So with all that in mind, right, we have the English title, the mirror stage is formative of the I function as revealed in psychoanalytic experience. Right. And then we have the French title, mm -hmm. the stade de miroir comme formateur de la fonction de jeu tel qu'elle est nous et révélée dans l'expérience psychanalytique. Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, I think it's significant that uh, je is capitalized, mm -hmm. um, which is I, which would normally not be capitalized. I should say that that this this whole title is not in caps, mm -hmm. right? The way that it would be in in an English essay. So it's distinctive. Um, so the I, Bruce Frank is translating as, um, like in italics, is here capitalized, right? There's something that is strange or distinctive or idiosyncratic going on with how Lacan is using je, okay? Um, and the other thing I want to point out is, you know, I think our, our first play on words is uh, Le Stade du Miroir. We generally translate this essay as just the mirror stage. Like, that's what people say. It's like, oh, Lacan's mirror stage. Um, it's, and people are like, oh, okay, you know, that's, that's kind of like yeah, it's one pretty of the, straightforward. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. But Stade is also stadium. And that's going to be important later on. I'm, I don't know. I mean, or arena. Yeah. Right. Like, so, so let's just hold that hold that in your Ooh, that is useful mind yeah also. so already yeah. the other is introduce it yeah th there's so much go yeah we're going to talk a lot more about that in a second when we get to sort of the drama yeah. but yeah sta stage has in english captures maybe three of the five different possible meanings that are in the french nice the other thing that's happening in the french too which i think is interesting and bears on these that question of like well who is lacan writing for and also what's the nature of lacan's gestures right mm -hmm. is this Tel qu'elle nous est révélée dans l'expérience psychanalytique, right? It's not as revealed in the psychoanalytic experience. It's right. frank. It's insofar as, or as it is revealed to us in psychoanalytic experience. Yeah, so that all, us yeah. is 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 obscured in in the translation. So already there's like a he's speaking in a collective way, and he's speaking on. We could be like, well, one, he's speaking on behalf not just of clinical psychoanalysts, but people who are in any way involved with psychoanalytic experience. But also, too, and this is a classic Lacanian kind of gambit, and it's a little bit, it's classically Freudian, too, in some ways, is he does a lot of gestures that are like, as we all remember, as we may agree, as we've all perfectly understood. Yep. And these <laughs> gestures are, you know, they're, they're cheeky, right? On the one hand, you're like, 
oh, we all understand all this, right? So we're all together and you sort of identify with him. But also if you- It's like you saying, right? Yeah, I don't mean to do that. I, people here, when I'm saying <laughs> I'm right, I'm like, am I making sense? Remember when like, are, my mom yeah, was like, Patrick yeah. should stop saying right because I don't always agree with him. Right. <laughs> but it's exactly that sort of gesture. It's like, as we all know, and like you take out your yeah. pen and you're like, do we though? Do we all know? Do we all agree? What's a little bit different here with Lacan, right? Is for me, this is an insecurity. That's an insecurity gesture being like, am I being clear? Well, right. for Lacan, it's a grandiose gesture. Well, for Lacan, it's a grandiose gesture that also could be, and this is a key thing, it puts you in a position of, even as it articulates a we, oh, we all understand these things. I can guarantee you there are lots of people in the audience that are like, I wasn't there in 30, 36. Or like, I don't, what? What are you talking about? Right? It's if Freud has a beginning of these, one of his most famous books uh, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle begins with a sentence that basically does the same thing. Abby, oh. you got it memorized, laid on us. Well, yeah. Um, oh, well, now that you said it, um, <laughs> in the theory of psychoanalysis, we have no hesitation in assuming that the course of mental events is automatically regulated by the pleasure principle. Patrick knows that I know that because I took an entire class once where we just read that sentence. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we could talk about that for a long yeah. time. I certainly did for a semester. Um, but that sort of, we have no hesitation. Yeah. It It's a moment of one, interpolating you into the we, and two, insofar as mentioning that we have no hesitation, introducing the very idea of hesitating. Yep. And that therefore, some of those we's might be in caught in the act of hesitation. Right. So, yes. yeah. So it's interesting. It interpolates you all of these sort of like, of course, as we know, or we were here. And it's like, was it 13 years ago? Like, of course, yeah. that's not the case. So it both introduces the, and, and consolidates this this we, but also gives you a moment um, of, of, of uh, I think, creating emotionally a like, I'm not on board with this guy. Yeah. yeah. A it, it produces a kind of tension insofar as it presents what seems to be collective knowledge uh-huh. and you're all supposed to nod with it. But also maybe you're like, I don't understand what this guy is talking about, but I should better keep nodding. And also there's the element of like, is this really total knowledge? Do we all understand this? Or is this guy just assuming that we understand it or pretending that we understand does it or demanding else, that we ask him like Or does everyone him? else but me understand it? Exactly. In and other words, can it's an experience I say of also, paranoia. It's an experience of paranoia. Yes. Yeah, it's created that experience of paranoia from the very beginning. Can I say though, um, this is in the spirit of the like, it's not you, it's Lacan, yeah. um, that if you get into reading intellectual history about um, like the Lacanian circle and about this time, you will find all of these eminent scholars who went year after year to Lacan seminars. And then like decades later, we'll be like, I had no fucking clue what this guy yeah. was talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I'll, I'll just fuck it. I'll, 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 I'll let this out. Right. One of my, one of my dear dissertation mentors was a very close personal friend of Lacan and would uh, spend a lot of time in the seventies uh, in Paris while she was writing her own work. And attended a couple of his lectures, but more would just go to dinner with Lacan after the lectures. And the stories, you know, that she, she, she tells is, is that he would recurrently, when she was at the lectures, occasionally, she, she was very clear, I was not a Lacan student, um, would say, so Shoshana, uh, what did I say? Because I don't remember. Again, like, and you, who knows? Is this playful? Was he literally in a fugue state? Was he just sort of free associating? Is he testing her? Yeah. yeah. But again, it's like this idea of, if there's one thing Lacan does, and this is why later he'll be so interested in, in people like James Joyce and Thomas Aquinas, um, 
is he produces enormous amounts of language yeah. that are almost sagging under the weight of overdetermination. And rather than getting caught in like the trying to reconcile all of it or to perceive inner logics that sort of like traverse the whole thing, we can instead dive in and out because there's already going to be so much for us to get out of it. Yeah. Right? Um, I thought you were going to see he like, he just keeps going. He like, just like, keeps I, going. The images yeah. I have is like Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah, no, he basically does. I mean, like part of his early work is on language and psychosis. And one of the ways he basically argues some people can deal with difficulties in experience is through basically becoming creatures of language. And uh, they become graphomaniacs. They become uh, constant talkers. And for him, well, James Royce is one of those. We could argue with Sayla Khan himself is. Hmm. But in any event- Derrida just, is totally one of them. Oh, totally, yeah. You um, know, apparently he used to like write at stop sign like while he was driving. Like I, just, yeah. Probably also the key to Substack. But that's another point. Stephen uh, King. Yeah, Stephen King definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But right. here, th- th- just to, to, to put a fine point on this then, we've already gotten these ideas. Do- th- 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 this, this object of the discussion is a function- not mm-hmm. a given entity. Right. Right. The field in which that function is being revealed phenomenologically is not necessarily the clinical consulting room, but bears some relation to a broader psychoanalytic experience that may include the consulting room, but also includes other disciplinary ways of thinking about phenomena. Mm-hmm. And three, we are in a position now of kind of difficult or anxious knowledge vis-a-vis our collective participation as an audience in relation to Lacan, the person telling us all this. Right. So that's all what I wanted to hit. And then we can dive right now into the first graph. Okay. And so diving into the first graph, he starts out by saying, basically, you know, I, I already introduced this conception 13 years ago and it's basically been, it's been accepted but I'm going to revisit it, especially because it brings to light certain aspects of this I function. Um, So before we can get into what that I function is, I want to read the final line of the first paragraph and spend a little bit of time unpacking what it is that Lacan is setting himself up against. Okay? He says it should be noted we are going to stop reading everything in both French and English at this point. Okay, we're just going to go to English. It should be noted that this experience, um, the experience that psychoanalysis gives us of the I function, it should be noted that this experience sets us at odd with any philosophy directly stemming from the cogito. All right. So the cogito is a reference to Rene Descartes. If you know one thing about Descartes, it is, right, I think... Therefore, I am. Although, if you do read, no, that's the Latin version. If you read, if you read the French version in in, in the discourse on the method, it's uh, je pense donc je suis. Um, so, more accurately, I am thinking. I mean, it it goes both ways, but the present progressive is pretty important here. I am thinking. Therefore, I exist, or therefore, I am existing. Um, we could, but I promise, will not do too much on Descartes here. The purpose of bringing this up and unpacking it a little bit is to say that what Lacan is up to with this notion of the I as a function is diametrically opposed to the idea that the I is a thing of which one can possess total transparent 
self-certainty. Okay. So very, very quick philosophical sidebar. Descartes in his stove-warmed room radically and systematically doubts everything. You know, he doubts his perception. He doubts whether or not he's dreaming, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, he lands upon criteria, which are clarity and distinctness for building up that which he can trust. But the first, the sort of fixed point for Descartes, um, even as he is able to doubt the evidence of his senses, um, he's able to doubt his perceptions, he cannot doubt that there is a thing, a thinking thing that is perceiving. At the moment of perception, which is a form of thought, according to Descartes, um, there is an I. Okay, so think of that as a sort of still fixed point. As we know from Freud, right, it doesn't take Lacan to say that humans are not transparent to themselves, right? This is one of the fundamental insights that we get from early on in Freud. You know, our motivations are largely unconscious. We are strangers to ourselves. But what Lacan is doing here is is setting up something that is really thematizing that I, that subject. And in the moment when, as we'll discuss in, in a couple of minutes, when we get to like the actual scene, setting the scene of the mirror stage, like what's happening, what is this stage, that in the moment when it seems like we are forming a stable self, that self is always, um, you could call it in, in sort of classic Lacanian language, you could call it split. I almost might want to call it like sutured, like torn asunder. Um, So the point here is that anything that takes the eye as a stable base from which to build knowledge is itself going to be diametrically opposed to the Lacanian project. And and again, it's really weird that here, like in a clinical paper or a paper that's ostensibly clinical, or at least a paper that's being delivered at a gathering of clinical psychoanalysts, Lacan is like being, you know, and our whole field or us all in psychoanalytic experience, we stand against this 17th century French philosopher uh, <laughs> and his basic conclusions, which underpin the entire like positivist system of, of, rash, of a certain type of rationality. And a certain type of empiricism. Exactly. Because to put in, in different words what Abby said so well, right, what the Cogito does, right, is it, it grounds indubitability certainty, Mm -hmm. the lack of doubt in a singular first person rational subject, right? Mm -hmm. And that's given. Whereas Lacan is going to argue, well, he's already suggested that I is a function. Moreover, it's kind of worth saying here that if it's a function, it has to be constituted. It's not necessarily given. It can be built up and it can also come apart. And it's worth saying here too, just to get a further handle on where this is going, because Freud, again, is a thinker of, of, you know, he engages with Descartes, but not quite like this. Freud is a thinker of, of the ego, of the id, of the person, but not of this thing called the subject. Lacan is also going to be a thinker who is operating a different moment, which people are talking about subjectivity, because of like the relatively new field of linguistics at his point, a Caesarian linguistics specifically, but also who is keen to think about 
critiques of the Western episteme more broadly and critiques of the cogito that he's already familiar with and that some of his audience might already be familiar with. Yeah. It's worth saying here, just to quickly point to that, right? That if you look at, well, the Latin, cogito ergo sum, you will note that these are, well, for those of us who have Latin, right? That these, there's, a, there's no like pronoun in there. Latin could add a pronoun as, an, as, a, as a matter of emphasis, but it doesn't. Instead, both cogito, I think, and sum are marked in the first person, right? It's I am, therefore, rather, I think, therefore, I am. The I is assumed from the get-go. Exactly. No, it's not assumed. It's built into the verb. It's, snug, it's smuggled into the right, verb, right? right. right. That's yeah. another way of Sorry, saying it. Sorry, yeah. not yeah, yeah. to be a, like no, no, a no, language good, snob. Well, it's, it's, it's assumed as a given in the sense of it's already inscribed into cogito and sum. But as Bertrand Russell at the time will say, you know, Bertrand Russell, a major thinker of this, and, and also existentialist thinkers like Sartre, who, you know, uh, Lacan is quite familiar with and who mounts a, a, a similar critique of the cogito. How do we know that the I that is doing the thinking is the same as right. the I that does the existing. Why right. not two right, separate right, right. It's That could just be an artifact of language. Moreover, there's a kind of bootstrapping character or another way the I is smuggled in, insofar as that if we were being really tightly parsimonious to describe the grounds of all thought, we can't really say, I'm thinking. It's rather thinking is happening over here. Yeah. Or there's thinking. And I'm now going to ascribe an I into it in language. Yeah, now, that's the bootstrapping. That's the bootstrapping. Both the, the Russell and, and the Sartrean and ultimately the Lacanian critiques of, of, of the Cogito, what they kind of point to is how this thing which is supposed to be the ground for all subsequent knowledge, right? And, and, and Descartes will deductively from this Cogito do everything, including develop a series of opt optics and theories of how you perception works and mirrors work and all that stuff too. Mm -hmm. uh, that that thing is actually not a unity. Mm -hmm. It's actually a kind of artifact, a gesture that is constituted. So what Lacan is doing is basically saying, no, this thing, which an entire positivist, i.e. very empirically oriented, subject-object, very secure vision of, this, of the thinking rational person, mm -hmm. what that, that that's not actually on firm ground. Right. That's not a given. And at that point, I, it might be worth finally saying, with an eye towards what Abby said, and also something that's come up in our readings of Freud, that at the beginning of Descartes' meditations, Descartes banishes from possibility as a, just a sheer exigency, as an imperative, as like something that he can't accept. The idea that, one, he is hallucinating, mm -hmm. and two, that like he is actively being misguided by, by the, a demon. By the evil, deceiving demon. Right. Literally, yeah. like, you have to imagine a demon. And it's well, it's like, it's sort of like God, but evil. Yeah, it's a demiurge. I mean, I know we have yeah. a word for that, yeah. and it's Satan, but he doesn't quite. Well, it's a demiurge more, right? It's, it's like, or maybe even an evil genius. It's, it's been a, a while It's the people who are running the simulation, it. right? Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but in any event, what both, He has to say we're not in the matrix. Right. Yeah. And, but, and he reaches to theological language to do it. It's almost like- Yeah, the, it's, it's kind of where a lot of this stuff falls apart. So, it, well, it's it's- from the get-go, even before he builds it, right? It's like, in order for me to be doing this, I can't be hallucinating, i.e. I can't be dreaming or mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And two, I can't be being deceived either by some other that's gaslighting me or through some illness that I'm experiencing. In other words, the Cartesian cogito is absolutely not the type of person or is not the person in the full psychoanalytic sense because in the psychoanalytic sense, one thing we always do is sleep, we dream, 
and, and are we constantly have, deceived. And we deceive ourselves. By ourselves and others. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, this so is of a, course, yeah, this is all it here. makes sense that, that Lacan would start out by kind of throwing this gauntlet and saying that we are at odds, which is, by the way, like a nice kind of echo um, of Descartes throwing down a gauntlet in Discourse on the Method yes. and saying, actually, like everything that I've read before was wrong. Um, so, so there's like a kind of interesting echo. And, and it's worth saying here too, again, like we're spending a lot of time on this because we're unpacking it because it's so incredibly dense. But we also like remind ourselves for one second who his audience is here, at least in this international psychoanalytic Lacan's thing. audience. Lacan's audience, right. Not in, through the text, but like, right. as he's delivering this, he's with a whole bunch of psychoanalysts, clinicians, doctors, psychiatrists, other people who are attending this stuff. And like, look, sure, some of them were super smart. Some of them were super erudite. And even some of the French probably the last time they ever looked at at Descartes was during was during it was in their lycée high school years yeah right so this whole beginning where he's like and now i'm going to com- i'm going to assume that we all understand both what the cogito is and these various critiques of it that i'm going to implicitly allude to and now we can talk and that's all what's under the umbrella of psychoanalysis there are people in the audience that are like what the what? Do it's I in one yeah. sense too yeah. he doesn't actually even say descartes he just says the cogito and so people would have to pretend to, to go along with this or like break out their old high school journals or something but in any event it's it's a weird it's a weird way to begin and then where it goes is even weirder namely Right after that, he's like, okay, now let's talk about babies. Well, it's, I mean, it's weird insofar, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm um, repeating too much, but I actually don't think that's like really possible in this, in this case, but it, it creates the possibility of a paranoiac reaction, right? Everyone else understands and I don't. I had two thoughts. One, spending all this time breaking down his relationship to Descartes in a single reference to like, like one sentence feels like a great example of what he does to Freud and the way he takes radical ideas and further radicalizes them, yep. like reads more out of them yep. than even the original person thought. And the other thing was, I kept thinking, I know Lacan is the subject supposed to know guy. Is that what he's doing? Is he's, he recognizes himself as the subject supposed to know in these seminars. So he kicks off his seminars by taking that hat, making it as big as possible like trying to make an umbrella for as many people as possible as you too are also subjects supposed to know. Yes. But then the weight of that huge hat makes it so that he's the only one that can actually wear it in the room. Yeah. And everybody else is like aware of the fact that they could occupy this space if they were also as smart as him. So it's like he's both undermining the subjects supposed to know position while going back around to reinforcing that. No, actually he is the subject. Yeah. Supposed he kind of takes us, he kind of like has his cake and, and, and eats it too in this way. Yeah, and you yeah. can see why people who are like, Oh, people would, would critique him and be like, Oh, this person is basically like a guru style cult leader. Yeah. I uh, get a lot of that yeah. out of Lacan though. I yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's fair. I, it, it is this way in which like he's, he's hyper attenuating our relationship to knowledge and the way in which knowledge is never just an abstract thing. It's always related to people who teach us things, to texts we encounter in particular times in our lives. And a lot of what we take to be the given terms of knowledge, like the basic building block ingredients of our systems of thought are in fact, what will can in many cases, as is the case with the Kagato, be surprisingly untested right. or rest on elements that are not actually rigorously arrived at nor empirically given, but are instead kind of held together through gestures of language. So let's get into the, like setting the scene uh, of the mirror stage itself. Because as Patrick said, now there's going to be babies. And this is one of the few times where 
for Lacan, we're talking about a particular developmental stage. Okay. So he's talking about babies, if you're picturing this in your head, somewhere between like six and 18 months. So I'm going to read the paragraph. This is coming right after that bit about the cogito. Some of you may recall the behavioral characteristic I begin with that is explained by a fact of comparative psychology. The human child, at an age when he is for a short while, but for a while nevertheless, outdone by the chimpanzee in instrumental intelligence, can already recognize his own image as such in a mirror. This recognition is indicated by the illuminative mimicry of the aha erlebnis, which Kohler considers to express situational apperception, an essential moment in the act of intelligence. Erlebnis is experience, and I I think that's just the aha experience. Yeah. Like, you look in the mirror, aha, okay? Yeah, it's it's the baby who's like, it me! Like, it's, it's, <laughs> Light bulb. It, it, yeah, it's, it's that moment of like, That aha. was like such a good voice of like the baby from Dinosaurs. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, not the mom. Not the mom. Okay, okay we, whatever. We tie out of this on that anyway, one. But then, yeah, anyways, yeah, different, different conversations. Okay. So let's, so like, first, flagging the fact it's really weird we've gone from, and we all know these things about it. As we all agree in our critiques of Cartesian, you know, like epistemology, now let's talk about this baby and some monkeys. And, and, and it's looking in the mirror. And it's looking in the mirror, right? So let's, I really want to pa- unpack this very shortly, or rather very tightly, right? So- it's taken all. It's taken as given that there's a fact of comparative psychology. We have the human child, and what's the deal with this human child in comparison to this chimpanzee? Outdone in intelligence. In instrumental intelligence, yeah. So, more broadly here, let's just observe and take as read something that is, well, is oftentimes referred to as the specific in the psychoanalytic literature by by Lacan and others as the specific prematurity of birth of human beings. Right, which is namely that babies are stupid as fuck. Yeah, right. Yep. I mean, I, I, we love babies. Babies are adorable, but there is a well. Consider, if you will, I don't know, a horse. They lick themselves off and they like start running. I mean, what you're yeah. talking about is sort of the fourth trimester. Yeah, essentially uh, of you know the the baby's first three months um, outside the womb when they really cannot do much for themselves. Yes, the, the baby, including hold their heads up. Now, I'm not a, I'm not I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but we can I think understand that because of the trade offs involved in our sort of cerebral mass uh, and the limited size of the birth canal and the other stresses that are imposed upon someone who is pregnant, we can't stay around in our, in the womb, you know, until we, I, can, I, I don't know, we could do math, right. Yeah. Or something, because then we would, we, we'd, we'd bust out like a chest buster and aliens or something. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not tenable. So there is a way in which like we're born too early and we, unlike that, 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 that foal that can just start running beautifully across the plains, we are, we'll, we'll kind of say a lot more about this in a minute, but we are fundamentally dependent. We have no idea what's going on. And we kind of can't be left alone either. This is another thing to point out here, right? As opposed to animals that are, seem adapted to their environment and like chimpanzees are doing things like a very young chimpanzee, for example, will have tool use, right? They will know they can- can, Instrumental intelligence. They can grab a stick and, 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 and start like going after termites, right? That they can scratch their own back against a tree, Right. right? That they understand and can move through space smartly. Likewise, even actually, uh, a kitten is a good example of this, right? There's some of these lab tests where you have a, a table 
right? A coffee table type thing that appears to end and fall off into a void. But then you extend the floor of the table, the, the, the top of the table with like plexiglass, uh-huh. right? So it doesn't actually end. Now, if you have a kitten, it will walk up to the edge of the table, look down and be fooled by the glass and be like, oh, this is a steep edge. I'm not going to go over this. You put a 12-month-old on that table. They keep going. They just keep going. And it's not because they recognize the glass and are like, oh, this is just some researchers playing a trick on me. They just go right off that fucking table. They, just, they don't register a risk. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 kind of, it's kind of remarkable. Like, I, I spent a lot of time around babies. It's, 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 it's remarkable the resilience of parents and the capacity of people to, over the course of a single day, prevent their babies from wandering into catastrophe is remarkable. Yeah. Right. And so here, Lacan is saying something, namely, that we are, in terms of survival, in terms of object permanence, mm-hmm. in terms of tools, the human baby is, quote unquote, more stupid than a chimpanzee, if we want to use this language. Yeah. Except for one fundamental difference, which is namely that. That they can recognize themselves in the mirror yeah. and, and realize that it is them. Right. As opposed to to the kitten that's like, who's this angry kitten in the mirror? Exactly. Yeah. So so this is now we can we can we can pass over the bit about this person named Kohler. What basically, among other think figures here, what Lacan is drawing on are, are people who are involved in the school of what's sometimes called ethology or this discipline of like animal, animal behavior. Yeah. 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 Animal and, behavior. And there's some overlap there too. Uh and he's kind of familiar with this and like sort of like phenomenology of nature and biosemiotics and stuff. We don't really need to get into that. But suffice it to say here, he's saying he's using a citation, which he may or may not have read, by the way. The guy read voraciously, but sometimes he drops names and it's part of this erudition effect and the subject's supposed to know thing. Yep, yep, yep. But he's basically just saying other people have noticed that babies have this capacity to self-recognize. That's distinct. And other people have said that this must say something special about the human. All right, next, next paragraph. So I'm picking up right where I left off here. Indeed, this act, the act being here of recognizing oneself in the mirror, indeed this act, far from exhausting itself, as in the case of a monkey, in eventually acquired control over the uselessness of the image, immediately gives rise in a child to a series of gestures in which he playfully experiences the relationship between the movements made in the image and the reflected environment in between this virtual complex and the reality it duplicates, namely the child's own body and the persons and even things around him. This event can take place, as we know from Baldwin's work, from the age of six months on. Its repetition has often given me pause to reflect upon the striking spectacle of a nursling in front of a mirror who has not yet mastered walking or even standing, but who though held tightly by some prop, human or artificial, what in France we call a trot bébé, overcomes in a flutter of jubilant activity the constraints of his prop in order to adopt a slightly leaning forward position and take in an instantaneous view of the image in order to fix it in his mind. So I hope you are, are imagining this baby, you know, held up and thinking like one of these kind of like walker things, or it could be, it could be also a parent holding him, but nonetheless, think about this baby facing a mirror, recognizing itself, 
leaning forward. And also think about and, and notice in the language that, that Lacan is using that there's play, there's joy. So rather than as with the chimpanzee, who in some ways at this point is smarter in terms of like tool use, you know, unlike that chimpanzee who's just like, yeah, okay, there's this thing, I'm going to move on. This baby is enthralled by its own image. And that sort of sense of, of enthrallment gives rise to, to movement and interaction with this image in the mirror. This idea of being enthralled is really excellent. And I think it's a good way for us to, to think very granularly about what happens in this first paragraph that we just read, right? So we have column A, animals that recognize themselves in the mirror. There is actually a mirror recognition test that you can, you can run on various things. Um, I should say, just for the record, and maybe I should have said this earlier, we're reading the scene about the baby as kind of like a parable or a, uh, a drama, which is licensed by some other stuff we'll get into, but more just to think about this as a scene on its own terms before trying to get too granular about, well, is this, not, is this or is this not scientifically validated? I should say, you know, like there's some great apes that actually do recognize themselves. There's some that don't, et cetera. The point here isn't necessarily the developmental precise accuracy of what's going on. We can right. talk about that later, but first we need to get these themes down, that, this idea of enthrallment. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's helpful to read this um, with as like only slightly less like mythical than some classic, like then like, you know, the idea of like the state of nature and social yes. contract theory, right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a founding kind of myth. Um, it may or, you know, in, in, in this case, it has, you know, more basis in actual organic, um, you know, observable reality. But we're not reading him as a, particularly as a developmental psychologist. We're, we're reading this um, in a whole host of ways that are focused on like what right now is happening in this scene. In other words, we're not just reading this scene as illustrative of a quote unquote stage or stayed, it's not in the French sense, as like a developmental level, right. but we're also reading it as a kind of existential drama. Yes. Right. Which is warranted because the other meaning of stad can also mean like a theater, mm -hmm. right? The globe theater or something. Something is being portrayed for us, dramatized for us. It is a drama in that sense. Absolutely. Like uh, Freud's primal horde. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. in this way, the mirror yeah. stage is uh, the mirror, the scene of the baby in the mirror stage is one of those classic images of psychoanalysis. Like, I don't know, the baby at the breast in Klein yeah. or the, the child in the crib in uh, the Fort Dot, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, tossing out the toy, et cetera. This is an icon that does work. Right. And with that in mind then, so yeah, column A, we've got animals that when they look in the mirror, what they see is useless. The uselessness of the image. The image is useless to them. When a chimpanzee in this account looks in the mirror, first it goes, is that another chimp? Does it want to fight me? Fuck me? Take my food? What? No, okay. It's like, no, that's just me. Okay, I'm moving on. It doesn't matter. It, has, it is useless to that. Mm -hmm. However, for the child, the child is, as Abby says, enthralled. It doesn't immediately go, okay, this isn't another baby. This baby doesn't want anything from me. It's just me. That's a nifty thing. And then it goes on to, I don't know, like, stick its fingers in a socket or whatever babies do once we've already established their self-destruction machines. The point, though, is that this child lingers with the image. Mm -hmm. And so here, it seems, we seem to be suggested that whereas the image was useless for the animal, 
it has a use or a function, so to speak, for the child. It catalyzes something. It gives the child something. So just to repeat this here, and we had the line here where, you know, he evokes another uh, study, another scholar, you know, Baldwin, we pass over that too. And also we have the dubious sequence of, 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 of Lacan saying that he's observed lots of other babies. And I, I, given biographically what we know about Lacan as a father, I find this a little bit doubtful. But besides that, right, let's just sort of ask. Imagine asking Lacan to babysit. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, go on. We're already starting to get a sense of, well, the baby's reaction first, right? The baby's reaction, what is it? It's... Uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah. And it's, it's also... It's pl- me. It's pleasure. Right, it's, it's an, play. Also, specifically, it's not just it's not just pleasure as a sensation. It it manifests in like a kind of uh, dynamic, uh, experimental series of movements and gestures. A recognition of potential, maybe. Yes. This yes, I like where we're going here. This is it, it's it's so a term sometimes used is that it's ludic, right? Yeah, which, which is fancy of saying play. playful, yeah, right. Yeah, and that's playful. another way of talking about the stage, a stad in French, right? It's an arena. It, it, it could be a stadium where you're playing soccer. It could also, though, be like a gladiatorial combat, like the Colosseum. We'll get to that in a second, right? But here you have the child in this, what you might call a specular moment, a looking moment. Mm-hmm. That becomes a spectacle for it, i.e. it becomes a thing it starts playing It becomes playing a spectacle with. for itself. Yes. In other words, we have a moment, the, identif- the initial thing here is not an exhaustion of the image, but an investment in the image, a cathexis into the image, to use this language. Mm-hmm. And that cathexis produces pleasure, joy, and a sense of possibility and play. Now, in the second paragraph, Lacan adds a little bit to this. And this is where I, I, I want us to actually call back to Freud in a second, right? But as Abby says, this child is not necessarily walking or crawling. They're in... The, like the what do you what do you call those things the like toddler holder thing yeah yeah I don't know what we call them none of us have kids well I know I don't think they I, I had one of these as a kid I don't know if they're still FDA legal it's like you know those things where it's like you, you pick up a baby that can't walk and then there's like a yeah they still have those. like yeah, the yeah, wheel yeah, they ring. kind of bounce yeah. in them yeah but, but they can also move in it yeah yeah, yeah, I think they still have those. Okay. Oh. One of my nieces has one. I don't yeah. know. Where like the baby is sort of suspended. Yes. And it, and here it's worth yeah, saying. Because they can't walk. They just like yeah. bounce. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they bounce. They vibe so, while bouncing. So here's the thing to note right off the bat, right? One, just quick, apart from it's sort of like uh, the questions of its intelligence, the baby is, you know, a hot mess, right? It doesn't have good body coordination. It doesn't have optic permanence. It, I, I forget when babies get stereoscopic vision, right? It certainly can't control when it pisses and shits. It's always crying, right? To be a baby is stressful and trippy. Yeah, yeah. It's, you are a mess, but the baby sees itself in the mirror and it's like, oh, that's me. I'm coming together as something. But, and this is the key thing, it could actually, it's not actually the baby on its own. It could be aspects of the outside world. It's the baby in its little mecha suit. It's the baby in the arms of its parents. It's a baby in all its juvenile activity that is constrained by a prop or a tool. We might almost say that it is having a prosthetic experience. Yeah. There's yeah. a tool around it that is compensating for its insufficiencies or lack, or but in any event is giving it a type of structure that allows it to do more than it could do organically on its own. And in that way, it invokes a classic image from Freud. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, there's that part, um, Patrick, you and I both quote this all the time um, from, from late Freud, from Civilization and its Discontents, where Freud is talking about 
what, uh, you know, like the, the question concerning technology, I guess, to borrow Heidegger's phrasing by accident. Um, and he's thinking about whether technologies, especially technologies that reach across distances, um, have made us any happier, like, you know, phones, airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, um, man has become, as it were, a kind of prosthetic God, um, which is an interesting thing to think about in the context of, of this, this, uh, baby playing, um, you know, baby in the mirror. And the armature, it's like when he puts on his devices, he's quite miraculous, but even then there's still like a childlike insufficiency in him. Yep. And so, yeah, it's the idea of like the child is seeing itself as being, because it's been held up mm-hmm. in this object and because it's getting the mirror in front of it, the child's initial moment of pleasure, which is also its first moment of self-identification, is in fact made possible. It's visually, like, oh, that's me. I'm on my own. Look how beautiful I am. I can move. That's me. Mm-hmm. It's actually not just you. It's a whole series of things that are dependently holding you up and it's, it's an also apparatus. being mediated by, it's an apparatus. Yeah. Yes. And to, to put a pin in one word that, that Lacan uses here, that sort of begins to suggest the ways in which now this is both a developmental stage, but also kind of like a, almost a tragic drama, right? It's this idea that the child leans forward and takes in an instantaneous view of an image in order to fix it in its mind. And first note that instantaneousness, right? The child says, my experiences of my body are unruly. I don't even know where my body begins or ends, but this thing in me, you know, I miss sometimes I'm sleeping. Sometimes I'm going to bed, whatever. Sometimes I want to be up when I shouldn't be, whatever. Right now, at this moment in time, this is actually me. It's as flat as a snapshot, yeah. right? It fixes someone in the position in that way. And it's sort of timeless. It's out of relation to time. But, 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 but the notion of fix here, right, carries many of the same meanings in English as in French. Fix could mean, well, fix this in your mind. Get fixated on this thing. Get held up on this thing, enthralled by this thing. Fix can also mean correct something. Something's broken, thus you have to fix it. The child was previously a messy uh, thing of limbs, but now it's been fixed into this totality of the image. But also the other sense of fix here too, and this is where we get that element of like taking something that's organic and alive and then stopping it in a moment. Yeah, It's like fixing a pin into a butterfly or fixing a creature into a collection. It's, it, there's a type of, even in the making something live, a kind of pinning something down. Yeah. I think, I think this, you know, we've only read a couple of, you know, we're, we're on page two, right. (laughs) Um, of this essay, we are going to come back in, in two weeks with more, we're going to finish reading this really closely and carefully, but I think this is a nice moment to kind of leave our listeners with this sort of you know, joyousness and play and gestures and like the ludic, right? Like you said, Patrick, because it's about to get really dark. And I want to leave us with a few lines from this book that we have been praising by Malcolm Bowie, who says the following, but jubilation and play have in fact a minor role in Lacan's narrative, which contains little by way of good news. At the mirror moment, something glimmers in the world for the first time. The child is still entirely dependent upon adults for food, security, and comfort, and still has limited control over its own bodily movements. But here, before the mirror, are the would-be autonomy and mastery of the individual in their earliest draft forms. The mirror image is a minimal paraphrase of the nascent ego. I want us to leave 
here with this sort of joyful, playful image of the aha before we pop the balloon, (laughs) right? Um, And before we get into the ways in which this moment, which right now is a moment of identification, that's me, before it turns out to be, twist, a moment of profound disidentification. Where we're going with all this, and I think it's going to be fun, is, and also not just like, theory, cant, or jargon, right? But you can rigorously read this essay, as we will and as we've been doing, to arrive at a more robust notion of both the values and the pitfalls of identity or identification as a concept, but also thinking about the ways in which we attach to the notion of identity. The notion of identity and identification is not simply a given like the Cartesian cogito, or or write the operations of the Cartesian cogito, but is instead a dynamic process and a process that we might want to, through the apparatus of what's called psychoanalytic therapy, but also through psychoanalytic thinking, kind of denature ourselves Mm -hmm. or or, or reconfigure differently. And so we're going to wind up playing with this drama in all its beauty and its tragedy, going through this text and hopefully arriving at something pretty cool whereby you'll be able to see how identification can coexist with alienation. Yeah. Yeah. And how the desire for recognition or the desire to be identified or to identify yourself can on the one hand be valid and essential and a major building blocks for our lives and for political movements mm-hmm. too, but also involve some sort of relationship to time to change, and ultimately to misrecognition. I was going to say to loss and to lack. Yeah. That is not, again, given or eternal like the Cartesian ego, but is instead a dynamic, we might even say dialectical process, function, and drama. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield and Dan Yowell. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken. <laughs>